Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Keep sending us Chrome experiments. Let me organize your things. Design with passion. From Italy. <laughs> Three words make ideas happen. Hey, welcome back. For today's guest, digital artist Jenny O'Dell, everything is fascinating. Landfills, really old tech magazines, you name it. To her, it's all art and it all tells a larger story about humanity. Jenny uses digital tools like Google Satellite and Street View to mine the internet in order to create murals of everyday things, like swimming pools, and explore how we think about them. Her work deconstructs items we see in our everyday lives, which makes it super relatable. Her career as an independent artist kicked off when a curator commissioned her work after seeing it featured in the Webby-winning Tumblr, Things Organized Neatly, which you should check out. We talked about that, as well as her many projects, her feelings on mixing tech and art, and more. She starts off by telling me what it's like to be raised in the heart of Silicon Valley by two technologists. Um, I think it probably matters that I grew up in Cupertino. Okay. (laughs) Um, And both of my parents worked at tech jobs. Um, So there were just, I feel like I was around computers a lot. um, And I was pretty often using them to do weird stuff that, you know, they were not meant to do. Um, Like, you know, like the way kids approach technologies is really interesting to me because they don't really know what it's supposed to be doing. Um, So I did a lot of wacky computer stuff as a kid, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, What did your parents do? Uh, my mom was a technical writer for HP, okay. and my dad was an electronics engineer for Tandem. But uh, so yeah. two parents in tech. So you started, and you're in the middle. I assume you're not on like one Infinity Way or whatever, but you're pretty no. close to the Apple headquarters. Really and close, yeah, yeah, really close. And I, I remember being a kid, and my mom brought me to HP, and in the lobby they had this VR headset. Although I wouldn't have known it, it's a, it, w- it wouldn't have been a VR headset to me in my head, but some kind of headset, and I put it on. And it was just a 3D chessboard that stretched into infinity, which is actually really terrifying to, like, an 8-year-old. Um, and if you looked around, you just saw chess pieces that were bigger than you. And wow. I thought that was really scary. Um, and Did you move <laughs> the chess pieces? No, you couldn't do anything, okay. at least the way I remember it. I, I, that's probably not an accurate memory. But right. um, point being, yeah, I was, I was around a lot of weird computer stuff. And were there, was like, were there a lot of, like, your peers in high school or – parents were tech workers yeah. at Apple and yeah. so you're really I mean you're it's, it's hard yeah. to overstate you're you're super inundated at this point with this yeah stuff, right like my high school had like an inverted social pyramid where nerds were at the top right so wow. <laughs> like yeah um yeah. you know in the early days of like the inter- like in the mid 90s the joke was that like the internet was for like people who weren't cool in high school it was like all of a sudden yeah. all these people who weren't really cool in high school suddenly got to be cool on the internet yep yep yep, yep. that was my experience what type of study did you pursue in school um, I was actually an English major. Okay. So um, I – and I think that does actually show up in my art because I'm always collecting things. And when I would write stuff in college, it was it just felt like I was collecting quotes. 
from things and then constantly rearranging them until I came up with something, some new idea. Hmm. Um, but definitely I'm still very into like books and libraries and archives and stuff like that. So, um, and I did that at Berkeley, which is a very like English major place to go right. to school. <laughs> um, and and then I did my MFA in design and technology at San Francisco Art Institute, like okay. immediately after that. When you finished at Art Institute, did you start making art and like sort of pursue that as a career? Or did you do something else first? Or um, I worked at a corporate job for three years, and then I was kind of just making stuff on the side. But um, at, the, <laughs> at the time, I feel like I had really had the fear put in me about like, like trying to be an artist is just so ridiculous, you know, like it's completely unreasonable in a lot of ways. And so I, I didn't have a lot of aspirations in terms of like doing it as a career when mm-hmm. I left. Like I was trying to be realistic. So, uh, so yeah, I worked at like a big, big corporation and then just like was making stuff for myself on the side. And then it just kind of ended up catching on in some places. Did the idea of becoming an artist become something that seemed more attainable or... Like, to me personally? Yeah, to you, yeah. Um, yeah, it kind of, like, it honestly, it kind of started with this, there's a Tumblr, I don't know if it still exists, Things Organized Neatly. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, and as you can imagine, I make work that looks very much like something that should be on that Tumblr. So that's, like, called Knolling? Nol- Knolling, yeah, that? which I didn't even know yeah, what that was. I love that, yeah. Um, and so my, one of my pieces had ended up on this Tumblr, and then I am pretty sure that's where this curator saw it who's like a actually really well-known curator in Europe. Yeah. And he put me in this show in like the south of France. It's like part of a photography festival. Can you just describe like your work or oh, indoor yeah. stuff on the site for people who don't know yeah, that yeah. site? Yeah. So that particular image was, uh, it's 125 swimming pools that are cut out in Photoshop from screenshots from Google Earth. So, and they're all kind of arranged in this very OCD looking configuration. So I had a whole, at the time I had a whole series of those like, Swimming pools, parking lots, basketball courts, like anything kind of like pedestrian built environment stuff, man-made stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And the site itself had a lot of, I guess it sort of goes after the name things organized neatly. Like it could be, it could be like a picture of like, you know, 45 different like credit cards that were really like nicely put together or just that kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So it just so happened that my, all of my work had satellite imagery in it and the theme of this show that I got put in was it was a photography show but it was all kind of unmanned photography so people using like street view or webcams or if someone put a camera on their cat like just anything except for a person like pressing a button on a camera what was the interest for you in collecting photos of pools or water slides or the other stuff you mentioned there and, and assembling them like what were you what was the meaning there for you um, I think it had to do with perspective. Um, I ever since I was a kid, I've really enjoyed like the moment when you're flying out of a city where things are not so abstract yet. They're kind of in between, like they're recognizable, but they're unfamiliar at the same time. Like when you can still see the cars moving and that kind of thing. Um, and so I've, I've just always had this obsession with um, this idea that the the strangest imaginable things are not far away. They're actually exactly where you are. It's just that you can't see them because of what you're looking for or how you're looking at it. And so at the time, like satellite imagery was was the most obvious way for me to access that, where I know that I'm looking at something that's sort of banal that I see in my everyday life. But from this perspective, all these things become apparent about it. Like swimming pools, for example, 
are often, you know, especially in Las Vegas, they're really weird shapes. Hmm. Um, or just the idea of a swimming pool, which is like, it's a hole in the ground with blue chlorinated water that people like get in right. for a while and then they get out. Like, I don't know, it's just like the-, the There's so of, many of them too in some places, right? Yeah. That's the shocking thing. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And then, and then like as I would do a collection, I would kind of like start to understand like just from the necessity of finding those things, like where they tend to be. So like which cities are going to have a lot of swimming pools and where, or like the fact that the landfill is always kind of like on the, not just on the outskirts of town, but in a certain type of outskirts, you know, like I, I just, it became almost like anthropological hmm. research on accident. Right. It, I had it exhibited in this show that had like people that were like my idols at the time, which was like pretty mind blowing. Like Penelope Umbrico was in that show and she has that piece, um, Sons from Flickr, which is like a bunch of people's photos of sunsets on Flickr, where I think she's probably cropped them, so the sun is kind of the same size in, in the middle, and then it's just this long like wall installation of them. Um, and you know that it's the same thing. There's only one sun, so you're looking at like thousands of perspectives like on the same thing, you know. Uh, so there was just a lot of work kind of like that. It was definitely not traditional photography. That's where I kind of got some context about like why I was more interested in looking at street view than like you know photography or something or making or me making photographs it's like not interesting right and you you eventually did a project where you went out to try and recreate google street view photographs though right oh uh yeah that that, that actually I did in school yeah that was around the same time that I did the virtual road trip um yeah I would find people on street view doing, you know, whatever, like walking down the street or like drinking a coffee. And then I would go to that spot and reenact. It's just called reenactments. That's the name of the piece. Um, I would just do exactly what they were doing. And it actually was really difficult because of where the camera is. So it meant that whoever was taking the photo had to stand in the middle of the street, which is a little bit right. treacherous. Yeah. Um, but the the But that just kind of drove home the point of that project, which is that people, I don't know, maybe not anymore, but at the time people tended to think of Street View as like, like somehow timeless, like not, you know, not real time, but just something more than just like a, a collection of photographs, which is actually just a collection of photographs that are stitched together. Right. So in these, if when you see the side by side of like my photo and the, and the screenshot, you, you can see things like, oh, right. Like it's this camera that's normally a lot higher up in the middle of the street. And it was a, the weather was a certain way that day. There was gra- this graffiti on the wall. It's not there anymore. Like it just kind of as a reminder of, uh, like, it's just one photo. It's just one photo, and even if it was taken yesterday, it's still right. not that thing in reality. Yeah, I mean, the definitely the for, there's something about the fact that you like go to Google and you search this address and like this is the one it brings up that it feels like it's been put in like this canon that like suddenly like this is the essence of Broderick Street, but yeah. like it's really just a day or, yeah, or a second, super right? Arbitrary. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is that just general like kind of like? messing around with the context of like our world, something, a theme you're trying to pursue in your art? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I think for me, it connects back to that idea that there's some, there's always something interesting right under your nose. Like there's also always something interesting that you could make or see. I think that's under, right under your nose. Um, I really, I really, um, I, I find that like my favorite work is, is just that it's like someone did something really deceptively simple just because they used something in a way that it wasn't intended to be used. And I think like anybody, I mean, any, I like the fact that anybody could do that. Yeah. You know, it's just, 
because then that's just your personal perspective on something that that's the newness that you're bringing to it. Yeah, I think. Talk to me a little bit about the the recent project that you did. It was called the Bureau of Suspended Objects. It's yeah. out in it's in, outside of San Francisco at the dump, basically. Yeah, it's at Recology. Um, What's Recology? Recology is the um, company that handles the waste for San Francisco, um, and so they it is colloquially known as the dump, uh, but it's also like a, a recycling and just like waste processing center. Um, and they have had a an artist residency program for more than 25 years, I think, at this point. Um, and as an artist in residence, you get to go in for like three, three or four months. You get a studio, and then you get access to the public disposal area, which is not the trash that you know, like you're throwing out, and the the garbage truck is picking up. It's it's customers coming in and kind of unloading, like decluttering, you know, throwing things off the back of their trucks. Right. Um, so it's not like a straight up like eggs and, and no, it's no. hopefully it, it's like junkish. It's junkish, yeah. Like yeah. the smell, which I get very nostalgic about the smell there. Um, the smell is like a musty hoarder's garage. Smell. Right. Yeah. Um, so you go, you get a shopping cart, which I just love that. I really, you go in with your your vest and your steel toed boots and your helmet and your shopping cart, and you just get to you know day after day just take whatever you want um, and. Obviously, there's, you know, been a lot of sculpture kind of stuff there, and people have used the paint because there's a there's this gray that they make out of all the leftover paint. Hmm. Um, and there's just always – the stuff that people do there is always amazing. Did you feel like, some, like, responsibility to look at what the canon of art made through the Recology, you know, artist in residence program and not do the same thing, or did you not even pay attention um, to it or – no, I mean, I was familiar with it because I always go to their openings. They're, they're like the best art, art openings. There's also a free pile of stuff that the artists didn't use that you can just like, as, as someone going to the opening, you mm-hmm. can take. Right. Um, I, my, the Bureau of Suspended Objects came out of a specific moment uh, before my residency had even started. We were being, I and the other artists were getting our orientation in there. And so we were in, we call it the pile. We were in the pile for the first time. And you you have to be very kind of vigilant in there because there's a lot going on and there's a lot of vehicles and, um, you know, you need to be like safe and just like aware. Um, So you kind of have to get in and get out. And I was just kind of like standing in front of this pile of stuff and I was just like really bewildered. And Chris, who's the other art, Chris Sollers was the other artist. um, I remember him like handing me this baseball. It was a super old baseball. I've like never seen a baseball this old. And I was just standing there like, staring at this baseball and like you can't do that in there you can't just like stand in there and just stare at something and they're like jenny get out of there it's just that hectic there's like trucks everywhere yeah yeah. and like the the point is you're supposed to go back to your studio and and like figure that stuff out so the bureau of suspended objects like it came out of this impulse to like want to spend time with every single thing in there which is obviously impossible and that's why the whole the project where i just basically researched um to like an uh, unreasonable degree sometimes 200 objects like where they were made and what they were made out of and why they were made um, it has the feeling of like an endurance project like I didn't need to do 200 right. I mean I could have done 100 and <laughs> I mean were you fast I mean were they all fascinating or I mean yeah nothing is not fascinating right. like I mean the most the, I mean that's kind of that was the lesson of that that project like you I mean you could pick up anything in this room and, and look at the label and start going down that wormhole online. And it's just everything. 
especially the most banal things, you know, are the product of like an intersection of a lot of really unstable and weird and bizarre, not given things. <laughs> People just they're like, oh, Jenny can figure it out. Did you end up having like favorite objects or certain discoveries that really surprised you? Or I mean, did you find like the hundred thousand dollar, you know, kings, king of Egypt, or so like, you know, gold watch or whatever? <laughs> no, I just found like I I just really liked the the weirder things like. Um, uh, I actually did did not find this in the pile. The people who worked at the dump found it and, and gave it to me to research. But there was a very water damaged Silicon Valley board game from 1980. Um, 1980. So you're like, it's like you're raising money and you're that kind of like. Well, it's like yeah. pre startup in okay. a way. So and and the guy who who made it doesn't really seem to like know that much about tech. <laughs> uh-huh. So like the ways that you get money are like renting your Tahoe cabin or like and then it's like start a bookstore or like I don't know it's like not what you would expect but I grew up there and so all of these like Valco which is this like now defunct mall that I used to go to as a kid is like on the board HP is on the board Hmm. Sanford is on the board Um, it's just like a really weird artifact of like this one guy who went to high school with Steve Jobs and just seemed like very enamored of that whole thing right. and decided to make a... He also made Gilroy Garlic. Right. Uh, which is another great board game. Didn't find it in the dump, but... Yeah. How did you how did you end up presenting the work um, it from just, the project? It just looks like uh, an archive or a library. So it's been actually shown um, in other places. It was shown at the dump right. at the end. and then. Well, it, so what was that like for people who were just listening? How do they oh, like, envision that? It's like a, um, you walk in, it looks like a museum kind of, I mean, sort of yeah. set up displaying objects, little cards. Yeah, it was kind of like a cross between like, an, like a, an archive. It was a little bit more dense than maybe a museum would normally be, but it definitely, you know, there were just white walls, white shelves, white pedestals, and then there's just these very carefully placed objects and then each one of them has the official bureau of suspended objects tag which has my stamp uh the title and then uh, a qr code that you could scan and it will take you to all of the research that i did on that so there were actually people who came back on a, a separate day to read the rest of the things like there were actually people going through and scanning and reading like about every single object which i thought was really amazing i don't know what it's made out of and i don't know what it's for so in the book and online, it just says this was this is an unknown object produced for unknown reasons in an unknown location. Right. So one of the things I, I was I read about was as you were talking a bit about what your hope people will use technology to experience your work and just mm-hmm. generally in the world. So you in this case you have something that's set up sort of like a archive slash museum, and then you have mm-hmm. people using technology to like interface with the actual curation and research, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, is that how you intend or hope people will use technology Did that sort of fit into your? So there were there were kind of two components, tech, you know, techie components to that show, and one was the scanning of the tags, and then the other one was this augmented reality thing that I had set up where I had photos of this, you know, quote unquote trash item, uh, and then I had gone and found the product photo for that thing, and I so I had it set up where if you had this augmented reality app, and you would hold your camera up to the print on the wall, the new version of it would be overlaid on top of it, um, which is wow. actually very simple to do. Uh, it looks complicated. It but sounds it, complicated. It's, it's really it's not complicated at all. Um, and um, similarly to with the tags, doing that was supposed to give you further insight into that object or you think about like 
how you're seeing every object you're seeing is at some point on its like trajectory to the dump. Um, but something kind of that I didn't foresee was that people just got more excited about the augmented reality than w- they didn't actually look at the thing on the screen or on the wall. Hmm. They just saw like, oh, this artist used augmented reality. Right. Or people were like, wow, this artist put tags on all these things and you can scan all of them, but then didn't scan any of them or didn't read any of them. Right. You know? So I, I've always, always had to kind of negotiate um, how I use technology or how technology is used in experiencing my work because I really, really don't want it to overpower the ultimate goal, which is like that show is really not supposed to be about me or about technology. It was supposed to be about the objects. Right. So how to kind of keep keep the focus on that. So how's that influence like how you think about it in the future? I don't know. I'm I I'm kind of still working it out right now, but I've I I've been just trying to pay attention to examples of work where um, it may there is some sort of technological mediation happening, but then you walk away from it and you have kind of like you know, actual augmented reality. Like you go outside and you see kind of more stuff or you see things differently. And I think that's that's something that is like hands down, I, f- I find productive and that is like a worthwhile use of, of any tool. Yeah. You know, like, and that's something you can really give someone. Like you can really, um, like I, I remember seeing a John Cage performance years and years ago at the symphony. And, you know, John Cage, his whole thing is like, I don't need music, like sound is just, is the music. And I know that, and I'd read about him, but I saw this performance, and I I can honestly say that I have never heard sound the same way ever again. And like that's, and I feel like that was a very generous thing, you mm-hmm. know. So, I I I think like I'm always going to be drawn to using like technological tools, and I do think they have the capacity to kind of do that. But I'm only interested in it insofar as like I can offer that to other people, like add something to their experience. Right. I mean, I, I'm I'm sort of like asking about this and staying here just because I think it's something that maybe not in the context of art specifically, but in the context of people's lives that people can really relate to, right? Which is people go to concerts now and or to restaurants and they like they really want to like cherish the moments. So they take photos of the food yeah. or at concerts. Yeah. They they're so excited to be there and so hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Favorite artists, they want that photo and that video, but that experience becomes really, like, mediated in a way. And, you know, I don't know if they go home and are, like, really happy to look at the pictures of the thing or if they ever do or I don't don't know. Um, But I think that people can really connect with that. It's so difficult these days to decide when to use these things and when it enhances the experience and when it feels like you're supposed to use these things and maybe it takes away from it. And then so much of it is just based on like observing other people and what they're doing and maybe even unconsciously following that like that's just what people do. Yeah. I mean, you go on the train now and it's like, yeah, if you're looking around, you're you're the only person looking around. (laughs) It's super easy to like take a photo of all those people on their phones and be like, get off your phones, people, yeah. right? But yeah. then, like, five minutes later, you're just, like, one of the people on the phone, so... It's, yeah. <laughs> maybe I, you're not, but I am. I, yeah. I, I, I mean, I struggle with it, like everyone yeah. else. I, I'm, I've been sort of interested in how, like, think, things can, like, proceed inward and outward from something like your phone. So if you're here, if you're in a familiar place, and, like, say you're on the BART, and you're like, oh, the BART's boring. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just kill this time with... I mean, phones are really good for that. You know, like, I'm just gonna do this random stuff or whatever. Um, but I was recently in Sweden and people in Sweden love speaking English, but none of the signs are in English. And I was alone for a lot of the trip. And so, um, I have this, I have that Google translate app where you point your camera at things and it translates them mm-hmm. like in the camera. Right. And I was having to use that all the time. I was having to like, I was standing in the grocery store, like Googling, like what is cheese <laughs> in yeah. Swedish, you know? And like, I, I really was relying on it to tell me what was actually there. It was like the opposite of like, I know what's there. I'm not interested. I'm going to like look at this thing on my phone. So it's that's kind of I I don't know if I'm going to end up doing anything with that. But it's like something that I think about that it can really go both ways. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just I mean, on some level, it's like directions, even like ways, like how many people who are like are using ways to give give them directions to places that they've gone to like a thousand times, but now feel like well, maybe this one time there'll be, like, a huge traffic accident or something, so I better have ways on to make sure that I don't, like, get in some sort of an accident. But... Yeah, yeah, and I think it also has to do with um, that that example in particular, something that I think about a lot is, like, op- optimizing, like, people wanting to optimize everything. So the reasons that people will do that in that situation is that they want, they want like, Google Maps to tell them the most optimal way at that particular time right. to get to that place. Right. Um, and that's... Like, you know, like humans are very cerebral animals. Like it's really easy to go down that road in a pretty like OCD way, yeah. you know, and not sort of leave anything to chance. Or um, I don't know. Personally, I feel like the unexpected is always going to be more interesting than anything I'm going to come up with. So I really want to leave space for that. And if it takes me, you know, 15 minutes longer yeah, to get somewhere. Do you think that's just tra- like becoming more aware of it and training yourself to not do it? Because, I mean, I think you could – what you just described there, you could, like, apply to, like, a million little wormholes on the Internet, right? Like, oh, I need to have, like, the best travel, like, you yeah. doing travel plans. And, like, you could go down there or the, uh, want to eat the best restaurant. I don't want to waste my time. I mean, it's Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. everywhere. Totally. I mean, you drive yourself crazy. I mean, I think people are driving themselves crazy with yeah. that currently. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and, I and like, I, you know, I'm not immune to that. Like, I, I definitely can, like, see down that road. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just, I think... 
I honestly feel like everyone, and this phone is terrible for this, like everyone could just like use a minute most of the time. Like so everyone could just like chill out for a minute and like, you know, look up your from your phone and like just kind of look around and be like, okay, what like what is this actually? Like what do I actually want? Like I maybe I just want dinner. Right. Just dinner, period. It doesn't have to be the best dinner. Maybe I just want to like eat some food and be surprised and like and then if you find something that's good, it's like exciting because it was on accident. Yeah. You know. I don't know, I sound like an old person now. No, I think every <laughs> I think everybody sounds like an old people person. Yeah. It's, I mean this it's a huge thing that's happening, right? So it makes sense. Um so you've lived you like lived in Silicon Valley your whole life. Maybe you don't live there now, but I mean yeah, I live you, in Oakland. So. Right. But you grew yeah. up in Silicon Valley. Yeah. I mean uh yeah. If anyone has some opinion on like what's happening in Silicon Valley, California, in the tech world, like what, like when you look at it now, what do you think? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I I think like maybe the most Silicon Valley part of my life is teaching at Stanford mm-hmm. because I am teaching a lot of students who then you know go on to work at these companies, uh, and and that whole like kind of optimization thing is something that uh, in context is something that I that I worry about um, because um, I see like people designing things that we now all of us use to communicate with each other and and all this stuff, designing those from the point of view of efficiency, not to mention like profit. Yeah. Um, And uh, you know, like the, the, the culture that would come up with Soylent, (laughs) like, you know, where it's like, like I don't have time to, eat food um yeah i have like a lot of problems with that yeah and it, it's i find it really concerning a lot of these things are things in your day-to-day life and they seem sort of trivial but they actually are really like what define people's humanity and their relationships and i mean it's like literally what you spend your time doing and so when you make these huge changes in those places it can feel really like disconcerting like if suddenly you don't go to restaurants anymore and you just eat soylent like that's a that's a crazy change yeah. in addition to being crazy it's also you know like people eat together and talk right. together like, and yeah it's, it's like these textures of of interaction and in, like daily life like um i was just hanging out with a friend in sweden who like never he just like never looks at his phone like compared to most people i know um and so i didn't because it seemed rude like right. to do it in that context and then like after a couple of days of that like i started to feel like really different from just not looking at my phone. Yeah. You know? And yeah. and we, like, I think we all know that the stuff on our phones is designed to be addictive, like, in a lab rat way. Like, yeah. I mean, it's not that far from casino design. So um, those are, like, intentional design decisions that are that are being made. And then, yeah, and then they're affecting these, like, very personal and private, like, spaces of your life. Tell me, I read that you um, had a, you were a, re- a resident at the Internet Archive. Oh yeah, so you were an artist in residence. There? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Tell me about that. Us. What did you What did you end up doing while you were there? Um, I did kind of a bunch of stuff, but I think the main, probably the main thing. Um, so I really, I, I guess I kind of mentioned this earlier, but I often think that things that kind of already exist or that or that I'm find and am surprised by are better than anything that I'm going to make. So I'm not usually very intent on like making anything in the traditional sense. So I was going through the archive, and I found this whole collection of Byte magazines, like B B Y T E. And so, is this like Byte. the physical archive you're going through, or no? The, this is online. You're, so you're yeah. in front of a computer yeah, going through computer, the archive. Yeah. Okay. Although I did visit the actual archive building, right. but um, 
So Byte Magazine, it was like an 80s era computer magazine, and uh, it's kind of from the time when computers were like a hobby. Like you would mm-hmm. get, you would build your own computer. Right. Um, and it had the most amazing ads in it, and the ads are like. Um, it's kind of like if computers and Make Magazine were right. It's yeah, like a. It's like that sort of like it's a DIY kind of culture, but it's for computers, which yeah. people don't think of anymore because no people yeah. just buy computers now. Yeah, and you don't like tinker with them. So, so the ads in the magazine are all for like you know computer stuff or computers, and they, I don't know if it's because they were just kind of trying to figure out the visual language for this very new thing, but there are all these really strange visual metaphors in these ads. Like there'll be like a, like an Apple II looking computer with like a cop hat. <laughs> and a writing crop in front of it, and it says, pay attention. Like, just like, you know, and then, or like a, there's like a giant pill, and it's opening, and there's a computer chip coming out. Um, some of them are really, like, disturbing. Um, and they, and so I started just, like, pulling those out and just kind of in a, almost like Richard Prince way, just, like, taking the, taking the text out, um, but leaving the background in. So uh-huh. it's just, you're just presented with this, like, kind of surreal and disturbing image, um, which I tried to pick the ones that are are inadvertently maybe... Seem seem prophetic, like in retrospect, like the computer with the cop hat looks like surveillance now, or like the pill with the computer chip looks like biometrics or something. What do you think they were trying to say then? They were just, I think they were just bad graphic cheesy. design. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, well, there was a lot. There's a lot of like things are always like really like sparkly and in, in in outer space. So it's like you know, it's definitely this like self conscious, like we are telling you about something very futuristic right now. Okay. Um, but but then that now you look back at it and it reads really differently. Yeah. What was it like working at the archive? Um, Did you oh. sort of end up having – I mean, I just it seems like it slightly ties into the stuff that you were doing at Recology. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and it uh, – similarly but, overwhelming. Right. Because there's just so – I mean, there's a lot of Byte magazines, and that magazine is often hundreds of pages long. Uh-huh. Um, and you always know that there's more good stuff in there. So it was really hard to just like – yeah, the exact same thing that happened at the dump. It was really hard to cut myself off um, and just be like, this is, okay, I have the material. I'm just going to work with this because, um, I, yeah, I could have gone through there forever. But it's also this, like, euphoria of finding, which um, one of my best friends was also in residence at the archive at the same time, but she happened to be in Korea at the time. And there was this period of the day where, with the time difference, we were both online and we were both kind of going through these old computer magazines at the same time and just excitedly sending each other. Our entire iMessage conversation is just, like, screenshots and then, like, OMG or, like, LOL and then, like, more screenshots. <laughs> so it's just, like, it was really, like, it really uh, made me think about how much I prefer that over, like, trying to make something from scratch. Like, it's just not going to be – you can't make that stuff up. Right. Yeah. I mean, also interesting about the archive is that uh, it's, like, what what's gonna what's it gonna be like in the future when people go back and look at this stuff? Like it's so devoid of con, right? It's like sort of what you're presenting is that it's like to, it looks comical or scary or whatever it is now. At the time, it's hard to know what it really looked like yeah. to those people who made those ads, I guess, right? Yeah, right. And then and then it's really easy to extrapolate from that and look. You know, you you don't have to distance yourself from our like current ads that much to right. be able to see that happening in the future. You know, like. Yeah how ridiculous the stuff that we have now is going to look and um, everything is always cutting edge, right? And then, you know, three years from now, it's going to look ridiculous. Right. Right? No one will even remember it. 
Yeah. Um, we wrap up. What are you working on now? Uh, right now, I've actually been doing more writing, um, unexpectedly. Um, yeah, just like some. I I don't I I don't know if you saw it, but like I I wrote this weird report, Bureau of Suspended Objects report on this watch. No, I didn't um, see that. So my friends uh, put my friends did this project called the Museum of Capitalism. And uh, they had like an object drive, so people were bringing in artifacts of capitalism. And someone brought in this watch that uh, he saw advertised for "quote unquote" free on Instagram. Uh, it's it's like the crappiest watch. I mean, you, I wish I could give it to you so you could feel it. It's like the the literally the cheapest possible feeling object. Um, and it's seven dollars shipping, so it's it's like a semi skim company right. um, where they're obviously making money off of shipping. But speaking of wormholes, I just, on this one object, I like it led me down this like crazy path of there's like this fake company that's pretending it's San Francisco, but then they have a clone and it's in Miami. And then you find out that they're all getting their watches from the same sort of cheap watch supplier probably, and then Photoshopping things out and like fake storefronts and uh, just like, it's just crazy. So it's just like, it's a, it's a PDF. And like, I put it up just because, you know, I was like, here's this PDF. And then everyone kept like sharing this pdf and it's like a feature basically sort of a feature of like here's what's happening there's this yeah. thing that's going on yeah yeah and i think like uh it it kind of it was a good maybe it was like a really succinct illustration of like the the scam that like branding is in general it's just it's like a really obvious example of that but it's something that everyone sort of sees happening um so like yeah i think I, I, there's always been a lot of writing in my projects and i think maybe like the writing is maybe just becoming like a bigger and bigger part of it um because it, as a as an artist who likes to kind of do like deep dives on things like that's writing is like it's the most basic kind of way to to open something up like that and, and i've been really amazed with the patience that people have i've written some really long things and people appear to be reading the whole thing so i just want to thank like everyone who, who read the entire watch pdf um where can people find the watch pdf um, it's now it's on um, topic. Okay. Yeah, that's a nicer version. Then you don't have to read it. It's now it's like a real, you know, they designed it and it's not a PDF anymore. Um, so if you go on topic and you just search like I don't know, free watch or something, it'll probably come up. Awesome, Jenny Odell. Thanks for joining us on the Webby Podcast. We're so appreciative. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks so much to Jenny for sitting down with us. We've linked to a ton of the work we've talked about in the show in the show notes. If you want to see some of the mundane things we see in our everyday lives through an anthropological and digital lens, spend some time with our projects like the Satellite Collection and visit our site for more at JennyOdell.com. You won't be disappointed. Our producer is Sebastian Aday. Our editorial director is Nicole Ferraro. Research and writing by Jordana Jarrett. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is the L train that's on time with no one on it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with our last episode of season two.